You know how it is to have some inside information? When you have this knowledge that the other person just doesn't think you ought to have. As parents, if you're a parent, you know that we often have this kind of information, don't we? Our, our children will look at each other and they'll look at us and they'll wonder, how do you know that? And when you have that inside information, well, that just brings a little stability. That, that brings a little clarity. That brings conviction to the choices, to how you respond to any kind of given situation. Well, as we read the biography of Joseph, as the readers of the story, we have this inside information. We have this knowledge that the brothers don't have. We know that Joseph, he survived being sold away to the Midianites. We know that Joseph, he survived being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. We know that Joseph, he survived being forgotten about in that prison. We know now that Joseph is married with two sons and he is the second most powerful man in the world at the time. We know all this. And the brothers don't know any of it. They don't know who Joseph is. They don't know what it, who it is that they are bowing before, who they're eating with. And we know. And so we are on the edge of our seats as we read Joseph's biography. And we are wondering, when is he going to let them in? When is he going to tell them? When is this big reveal going to take place? And now we reach that moment in the story, this exciting moment when Joseph finally tells his brothers... I'm Joseph. You got to see this big reveal and you got to see how Joseph sets it up. So let's go ahead and dive in. Genesis chapter 44 will begin with the first 18 verses. It reads, Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after these men at once. And when you catch them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well, then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes and they loaded their donkeys and they returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say, my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. 
But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. As Joseph's feast drew to a close, Joseph took his servants and he instructed him, here's what you need to do. I want you to go and I want you to fill all these brothers, all their sacks with food and money, all that silver. And in the youngest one, in Benjamin's sack, I want you to put my silver cup right in his sack. Now, you need to understand, the silver cups in those days, they were used by the Egyptian leaders. These polytheistic rulers, they had these silver cups and they believed that they could just look into the cup and watch the movement of the water or that they could dip things into the water of this cup and that then their gods would just reveal things to them about the future. So these cups were used for divination. It's likely that the Egyptians thought that Joseph might have used him in this way. Maybe even the brothers had heard about this and this practice over in Egypt and, and would have assumed that this prime minister used the cup in that way. Joseph, as far as we know, he likely never did. I mean, every indication we ever get from Joseph is that he is sold out to his God, that this was just a common Egyptian practice that Joseph really didn't participate in. But nonetheless, this cup is still a precious cup, a valuable cup, a special cup. And now this special cup was placed in Benjamin's sack as a trap. You know, Joseph, he likely wanted to see if his older brothers would treat Benjamin the same way that they had treated him all those years ago. Would they try to save their own skin rather than looking out for their brother? Would they try to come up with some excuse, some way that they could just kind of calm their father down because they know just how hurt he would be by losing Benjamin? Or would they stick up for him? Would they, would they hang around? Would they, would they put in a defense, a help for Benjamin in a way that they never did for him? Well, the brothers, they, they've expressed their, their thanks and they've said their goodbyes and now they leave the city. And you can imagine as they're, as they're, as they're leaving the prime minister's house, they must have been talking to one another just with wonder and amazement and excitement. I mean, can you believe we just got to eat at the prime minister's house? He, he invited us to his table. He sat down and ate with us. This Egyptian ruler sat down and ate with us. How incredible it is. I mean, that was the best meal we've had in ages. All oh, the food, it was so delicious, so, so yummy. Oh, it was so great. All that excitement, all that wonder, all that amazement, it would be short-lived because the servant, the prime minister's servant, overtakes them shortly. And when he overtakes them on their journey, he says, why did you steal from the prime minister? Why did you take his precious silver cup? And the brothers, they protest. I mean, they know they're innocent. And they say, come on, why, why would we do such a thing? We even brought back the money to you from the last time. We, we would not steal any silver or gold. We are, we are so grateful to the prime minister. He's treated us so well. I tell you what, we are so innocent that if you happen to find it in any of our sacks, you can kill that brother and all the rest of us will become your slaves. And the Egyptian servant, he says, well, that's, that's a pretty good deal. But let me amend it just slightly. 
Whoever has the cup, that one will become the slave and the rest of you will be free to go. And then the servant begins his search. He begins with the oldest, Judah, and he looks through his sack and he goes from brother to brother to brother, looking through every sack and every brother's sack is innocent. They, they don't have the cup. And as he goes from brother to brother, you must imagine the brothers feeling a little bit of sense of relief, thinking, obviously, we didn't take the cup. We told you we're honest men from Cain and all brothers of one, all sons of one father. We, we didn't take your cup. And then the servant searches the youngest. He searches Benjamin's sack. And there it is. There's this precious silver cup. And at this, the brothers, they can't take it. They tear their clothes. They begin to weep and grieve. I mean, this is a deep sense of grief because they know the consequences that Benjamin would now face. They were just laid out for him. The, the servant had just told them, if I find it in any of your sacks, that one will become a slave. And then something incredible happens. Something amazing happens. The brothers... They load up their sacks. They, they put everything back together, all their supplies, all their food, all their money. They load everything back up. And they follow the servant and Benjamin back to Egypt. Remember, they're free to go. That, that was the deal. Only the guilty one will be the slave. The rest will be free to go. But what do these brothers do? They load up their stuff and they follow back to Egypt to be some sort of defense, some sort of help for Benjamin. They arrive at Joseph's place and immediately all of them, they just throw themselves to the floor. They, they prostrate themselves before Joseph and Joseph asks the question, what have you done? Why have you repaid all this good with evil? Why did you take this precious cup? And interestingly enough, it's Judah who responds. Judah is the one who speaks up. You remember about 25 years earlier that it was Judah who spoke up then too. And Judah spoke up and he said, here's what we need to do with that little brother of ours, that little spy, dad spy. You see those Midianites coming? Why don't we just sell him away, this teenage dreamer of ours, get rid of him forever. It was Judah who spoke up then. And it's Judah who speaks up now. But his tone has changed. He says, how are we supposed to prove this to you? How are we supposed to prove our innocence? We see all this circumstantial evidence. It's clear. It looks like Benjamin's guilty. How could we possibly prove our innocence? And then he adds, but God has discovered our guilt. Did you catch that? God has discovered our guilt. And that's it. That's it right there. That's just what Joseph was looking for. Evidence that his brothers really are beginning to see things from a vertical, godly perspective rather than simply this horizontal, humanistic perspective on life. And they say, we're guilty before God. We should all become your slaves. Every last one of us, take us all. And Joseph says, what kind of man do you think I am? I'm not going to do that. That's not the kind of leader that I am. Benjamin is the guilty one. He's the one who will be my slave. The rest of you, you're all free to go. Well, Judah, he speaks up 
again, and he delivers this impassioned speech beginning at verse 19. Joseph, he, or, or Judah, he recalls to Joseph just all their interactions and that they've had with him over, over this time, everything that's happened, and he speaks so tenderly about Benjamin. You remember how he spoke about Joseph, don't you? Oh, it would have been, oh, he's dad's favorite, this little dreamer, this little spy, how we can't stand him. And now as he talks about Benjamin, it's, oh, that, that young lad, Benjamin, how his father loves him so. You see, his perspective has changed. The way he treats Benjamin is markedly different than the way that he had treated Joseph all, that year, all those years ago. And Judah tells Joseph how, how he led his father to believe that Joseph was killed by animals. He actually tells Joseph all this. Joseph, for the first time, hears the alibi that the brothers had used to convince their father that Joseph was dead. He now knows what his father thinks. He, he didn't know that before, and he hears this. And you can imagine just the emotion that must have been stirring up with him at this moment. You know, this whole test that Joseph had kind of put on the brothers was a test to see, do they really have this love and compassion for Benjamin? But it was also a test to see, do they have love and compassion for their dad? Because all those years earlier, when they had told that lie to Jacob, they, they didn't have any love. They didn't have any compassion for Joseph. They didn't have any love. They didn't have any compassion for Jacob. And now all these years later, as Joseph hears Judah talk, he's seeing something happen. He's seeing love and compassion for Benjamin. He's seeing love and compassion for their father that they never demonstrated before. And then Judah, he's going to say something incredible. Let's dive back into the story. Genesis chapter 44, beginning in verse 33, all the way through Genesis 45 through verse 15. It reads this, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. 
God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. You remember Judah, he was the original mastermind behind selling Joseph away. And he was also the one who made this promise to his dad with Benjamin and said, Dad, I'll take care of Benjamin if, if you just let him come down to Egypt so we can buy some more grain. I'll, I'll vouch for him. I'll protect him. If anything happens to him, you can hold me accountable. He had made that promise to his dad. And so now he proposes to the prime minister of Egypt, let me take my brother's place. He's, he's fulfilling his promise to his dad. He's full of love and compassion for Benjamin, love and compassion for his father. And he makes this incredible bargain. I will take my brother's place. Let him go. I will be your slave. You can imagine the emotion of Joseph at that moment. Here is Judah doing for Benjamin what he never did for him all those years ago. He can see the change in this man's life and the emotion, it becomes too much. It's just overwhelming. And so he clears the room. All the Egyptians have to leave. And in that moment, it's simply Joseph and his brothers. And the brothers must have been wondering what is going to happen. This man seems like a madman. He's breaking down right in front of us. What is he going to do to us? This can't be good. And the prime minister, he begins weeping, wailing so loudly that the Egyptians outside the room can hear him. They began telling people, everyone in Pharaoh's household knows the prime minister is really crying in there. And the brothers must have been wondering, are they all going to think that it's us who are like, that we're doing something to the prime minister? What are all these Egyptians going to think? You can imagine their eyes questioning, fear filling their faces as they glance around, but not moving a muscle, not uttering a word. And then they can see this prime minister. He's trying to get something out. He's trying to say something. He's struggling to speak through the tears. And then finally he yells it out loudly. Just two Hebrew words, Ani Yusuf, Ani Yusuf. And the brothers understood all too well what he had just said. I am Joseph. I am Joseph. And Joseph immediately, he asks about his dad, but his brothers, they're, they're overcome with fear. The color drains from their faces. It's as if they've just seen a ghost. No one can speak. They can't believe it. How could this possibly be Joseph, this clean-shaven, headdress-wearing Egyptian? How could this possibly be Joseph? And what if it is? Well, what's going to happen to us? How awful this must be? What kind of trap is all this anyway? And then Joseph says come closer. And that word in the Hebrew, come closer, it, it's, it's not 
merely a, a geographical, physical kind of come closer. It also encompasses this idea of intimacy. Yes, come closer physically, but also come closer in an intimate kind of a way. And so many scholars believe that right here, what Joseph is doing is he's exposing that he has the sign of the covenant, that he is circumcised, the, the, the covenant that was established back with Abraham, that Joseph too is circumcised, and no Egyptian would undergo that kind of procedure. And so as he says, come closer, and they come closer, he shows himself that he has the sign of the covenant, that he is a Hebrew, and he also says, I am Joseph the one you sold into slavery to Egypt. That was their deep, dark secret, you remember? That was the big skeleton in the closet, the thing that they never uttered to anyone, the thing no one knew. The only one who could possibly know that was Joseph himself. No one else could possibly know this was the secret that they had kept hidden in their family for all these years that they never spoke of. And then Joseph, well, he does something truly remarkable. He demonstrates a life that is controlled by God. Because immediately he says to his brothers, don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be frustrated with yourselves. Don't be grieved with yourselves. God made all this happen. I mean, if I were Joseph, if, if we were Joseph, we, we, would, we would want a little bit of anger, right? I mean, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of grief over everything they've done. That would be nice just to see a little, a little something. But Joseph says, don't be angry. Don't, don't, don't grieve yourself here. He's offering us some practical theology right here. He says, I am where I am because of God. In other words, you didn't really send me to Egypt. God knew. He, he knew what was going to happen. He knew of this famine. He knew of the struggle in the land. He, he knew that you would one day need protection. It was God who ultimately brought me here. He says, I am where I am because of God. That's remarkable. Can you say that? Are you able to say that? That you are where you are because of God. That the sovereign Lord of the universe has placed you right where you are, right in the job that you have, right in the neighborhood where you live, right in the places where you work, live, study, and play, because he wants you there. Because he wants you to impact people in your sphere of influence right where you are. That you are where you are because of God. See, that's the conviction we ought to have as the people of God, that God brings us to this place in this generation at this time for a purpose. And when you have that kind of conviction, well, that brings stability. That brings humility because we understand God is in control. Joseph understands that. And he also adds something else. He, he essentially also says, I am who I am because of God. I am where I am because of God, and I am who I am because of God. Yeah, I mean, you look at it. Joseph doesn't say, hey, let me tell you how I did it. Let, let me tell you how I rose to power in Egypt, how, how faithful I was in Potiphar's house, and how faithful I was in the prison, and how I curried the favor of Pharaoh. Let me tell you how I rose to this position. He didn't take any credit he says, I am who I am because of God. God made me me. 
Joseph was just simply faithful. He was just simply obedient. And if you reach that place of faithful obedience where you can say, I am. I am who I am because of God. I am where I am because of God. Well, that brings stability when times are tough. You saw that in Joseph's life, didn't you? That through all these difficult times, that that confidence never wavered. I am who I am because of God. I am a slave in Egypt because of God. I am a servant in Potiphar's house because of God. I am thrown in prison because of God. I am here for a purpose. I'm here for a reason. I'm going to impact people wherever it is I am. There is a stability in that. And then when times are good, there's also humility. It doesn't go to Joseph's head. He says, well, I've earned this. I've kind of paid my dues and I've worked my way up. No, God has brought me here. It's not me. It's not because not I'm special, not because I'm, I'm better than anybody. It's God has brought me here for a purpose. I am who I am because of God. I am where I am because of God. Joseph, he then offers all of the blessings that he has in Egypt to his family. He tells them, go get dad quick. Bring, bring him up here. Otherwise, you are all going to be destitute. But I want to share all this with you. All the blessings of the land. It's all going to be yours now. We're going to live here. This family, this dysfunctional family. We're going to be reunited. It's going to be good. And then, as he's telling them this, you must imagine the Egyptians. Because they had just heard Joseph weeping, Joseph wailing. Their ears must have been pressed up against the wall, wanting to listen to everything that was taking place in that room. And the next thing they hear is the shuffling of feet. As Joseph moves from brother to brother to brother, he begins with Benjamin the innocent brother, and he just embraces him, and they weep on each other's shoulders, and what Joseph must have said to him, I can't believe you're all grown up now, it's so good, the man that God has made you to be, oh, how I love you, brother. And then he moves to jo- Judah, Judah of all the brothers, and he, and he hugs Judah and embraces him and, and says to Judah, Judah, I know, I know it was you who had the idea to sell me to the Midianites all those years ago, that fateful day. It's okay, Judah, I forgive you, I love you. And he must have moved from brother to brother to brother, just telling them, I know, I forgive you, I love you. What a beautiful scene. What a, what a powerful scene. Because, you know, we, we live in a culture that says when somebody hurts you deeply, when, when somebody does something you don't agree with or something that, that just doesn't seem quite right, well, what do you do? Well, you boycott them. You know, you don't, don't, don't go shopping there anymore. Don't, don't hang out with them anymore. We want to erase them. We want to distance ourselves from them. We want to cancel them. That's the type of culture that we live in. The ability to forgive those who hurt us deeply, well, that's evidence of God in our life. Forgiveness is evidence of God's presence in our lives. Because after all, doesn't this scene remind you a little bit of our Savior? Here we are, sinful humanity before a holy God. And we know our sin, we, we admit our guilt, and we're so guilty, we recognize that we don't even remember all the things we're guilty of, but those deep, dark things, those things we've hidden away in our closets for all those years that can't kind of haunt us because it's the worst of the worst, we, we know it. 
And we're terrified that this omniscient, holy God, as we enter his presence, that he's going to make us pay for all that. That there's going to be this awful justice awaiting us. But instead, what does he do? He takes us in his arms and he says, I know. I know everything you've done. And I came anyway. I love you anyway. I forgive you. I want you to be in the family. He heals this highly dysfunctional family by taking the righteousness of his son and saying, here, it's yours. You can have his righteousness. He's paid your debt. Come on now. Enjoy the blessings of the land to which I'm taking you. That's what Joseph does for his brothers. That's what God does for us. You know, justice would have ended the story, but grace opens up another chapter. The next chapter in, in this Joseph narrative is incredible. You do not want to miss next week as we conclude this magnificent series on Joseph's life and this series meant for good. We'll see you next week. But Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for your goodness to us. That as we stand before you and we admit our guilt and we know we are guilty, that instead of just hurling your justice at us, you embrace us and you say, you know, and you forgive us because you want that relationship. You want to heal what's been broken. You want to restore what's been lost. God, help us to be your ambassadors who go and take that message wherever it is. We live, work, study, and play for the sake of your kingdom. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.